But I will tell you that um, this morning's passage ties in so well with uh, where we are going next week. Pastor Tom and I were doing our kind of worship planning and the preaching calendar together. And this week is actually the one-year anniversary of our Advancing the Gospel Ministry Expansion Project. And we wanted to do something to recognize that, to celebrate what God has already done and what God's going to be doing. And we're in this together as a church family. And we were wondering, should we do one or two weeks? And we decided just to do one week on it next Sunday. And it turns out as we're coming into Romans chapter 15, today we're finishing up the last half of Romans 15, it ties in so well with where we're going and what we're talking about and really the mission of our church, which is advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. And that we use that as the theme for this ministry expansion project. Um, you might be newer here if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, we are, one of the major things we're doing is expanding this facility. That's a big part of it. But we've also committed that we're not going to do expansion just on this campus alone when we, do, when we raise money and we want to expand. But we want to have an impact on the kingdom of God in other places. So we are impacting places like Peru. Um, pastoral training in Africa, and a significant disciple-making ministry. And right now, we're putting our sights on Trenton for the location of that. Uh, we want to go where God leads us, so we're not putting that down in stone. But in the last year, we've done a lot of investigating Trenton, meeting with Christian leaders over there, praying, determining where it is that God wants us to go. And you'll notice I'm not calling it a church plant. I'm calling it a disciple-making ministry because it could take the form of an evangelistic community center. Um, it could take a number of forms. But at the same time, we're really hoping that God leads us to eventually what will become a church plant. And um, we are really praying on the steps to take for that. And we're excited where God has led us so far. But that's what we talk about when we say a ministry expansion project. And as we look today, it really is kind of a tie-in to next week when you see the themes of what we cover in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. I'd like to uh, invite our ushers come up to come up this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and they would be glad to get a Bible to you. And I will put the scripture on the screen behind me as well. But um, if, you, and if you don't have a Bible at home, take that home as your gift from us because we want to make sure that you have God's word to read. And I'm going to start reading in Romans 15, beginning in verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Elycrim, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I, 
I'm sorry, I'm actually stopping there at this point, up through 19. But as we look at this, and we look back at verse 16, what Paul here is, Paul's talking about, he uses the word sanctified. Paul is saying that he has sanct, that these Gentile believers, and Rome was made up the church predominantly of Gentiles, Paul is saying that these believers in Rome have become sanctified. Now, that's a word that if we were to probably go out on the street and ask people on the street what the word sanctified means, they, along probably with quite a few of you, may not quite know what the word sanctified really means. And, you know, words are important. Now, let me give you an example. Um, if you went to the doctor and the doctor told you that you were suffering from diaphoresis, you might think, oh, no, doc, how long do I have? Until he reassures you that it's simply the medical term for sweating. Now, the opposite could be true as well with the emphasis of the words. My son, my youngest son, Daniel, is um, doing this summer. He's going to Vietnam for the summer with Samaritan's Purse on a medical missions trip. And he, Samaritan's Purse sent this list of immunizations that were either required or recommended for him to go on this trip. So one of them was Japanese encephalitis. Now, we really didn't know what Japanese encephalitis was, but it was recommended for an immunization. So the problem with it was you can't get it from your family doctor. You've got to go to a special location to get it. And it required two shots with a number of weeks in between, and he had limited time. So I jumped on the Internet to say, is this really necessary? Well, when I looked up Japanese encephalitis, what I found out was for those who, from those who contract the disease, the fatality rate is 20 to 30%. And for the fortunate ones who live, you're left with brain damage. So, needless to say, um, mom and I quickly made an appointment to get Daniel his immunization. So, you know, words really matter. And when you look at the word sanctification, we have to ask ourselves, what is Paul really talking about here? Well, the word comes from, it's actually, it's a, it's a biblical word in the Greek, but we pick up the word sanctify from two Latin words. The Latin words you have first is sanctus, which means holy, and the second word is facare, which means to make. Now, you put these words together, and you find out that sanctification or sanctify means to make holy. And Paul, as he's talking in here about these Gentile believers being sanctified, what he's talking about is the process of becoming holy. So, as we look at our mission statement, the word sanctify and the word disciple have a lot of associations with one another. We happen to use in our mission statement, making disciples who make disciples. The word disciple means a learner. It's someone who's becoming like their teacher. So as Christians, as we are disciples of Jesus Christ, our job is to become like Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus himself is completely and perfectly holy. So the discipleship process, becoming like Christ, can also be looked at upon as becoming holy in how we live. Now, in sanctification, there's two different ways to look at it. One, in a theological term, we can be positionally sanctified, which means when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, at that moment when the Spirit of God indwells you, because of Jesus Christ and His and his, what, his righteousness being imputed to us, we are immediately made holy in the eyes of God. So positionally, you're sanctified when you trust Christ as Savior. 
However, we have this ongoing battle. Remember back into Romans, a number of chapters ago, when we were preaching through, especially Romans 5 through 8, and we see this struggle with sin and the sin nature that's within us. And we all realize that we might be positionally sanctified, but probably not too many of us feel very sanctified because we're sinners. And they call the process of growing in spiritual maturity and becoming holy, that's progressive sanctification. And as we learn to repent from sins and we learn to deal with sin in our lives and lean and trust more and more on Christ and we grow in spiritual maturity, we're progressively becoming sanctified. So we see this real dynamic relationship between sanctification and, um, and, and discipleship. But what I'd like to throw out, I want to give you what our point is for this, this section of the Scripture, because we're going to see from the Apostle Paul that it's not good enough for us to just become disciples ourselves. And then basically what I'm saying is it's not okay to come to church and sit and be fed and to grow and to do nothing with it, because God expects more from us. So the first point that I'd like to make this morning is let God use you to help others become like Jesus. You see, as we become disciples ourselves, God wants to use us in the discipleship process with other people. And Romans chapter 15, the passage I read, 14 through 19, gives us a really good description of what discipleship is all about. As we go back in your Bibles, take a look at verse 14. And we see here Paul says that these Roman believers were full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. We go on in verse 16, and Paul says that these Roman believers became acceptable to God, sanctified, made holy by the Holy Spirit. And then we see in verse 18 where Paul says, basically the result of his ministry would lead to obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And what Paul's giving us here as we go through these sections is a beautiful profile of what it means to be a disciple, but what also it means when you're investing into other people, what the fruit of your investment should look like in them. And Paul gives us a wonderful picture. But um, one of the things that I want to highlight is that Paul doesn't, again, let it sit there with just them becoming disciples. Because in verse 14, Paul said that these disciples are able also to admonish one another. You see, that's what I'm talking about when I say let God use you to help others become like Jesus. Admonish, think of it as like encouragement, pushing on that we as disciples of Jesus Christ are to push others towards spiritual maturity, to help them grow in their discipleship process. You see, it's not good enough for us as Christians to come to church just come attend on Sunday, maybe go to a Bible study, be fed, be fed, be learning. Now, that's important because Paul also pointed out that these disciples were filled with all knowledge, which is a good thing. We grow through the Word of God, but God wants that Word of God to come alive within us so that it flows out of us as we invest into the lives of others to help them grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. See, we could have taken our, our um, mission statement and said, we're advancing the gospel by making disciples and just stop there. Would have been a, a truthful statement. Would have been also a great mission. 
But you see, God wants it to take it a step further, and that's why we added in who make disciples. And the reason is, is that a faithful and obedient disciple of Jesus Christ is making disciples of other people. And that's why we added that last statement to our mission statement. Now, Paul, as he's presenting in this passage here, he gives us this like word picture of him presenting these Gentile Christians to who he's poured into as an offering to God. And it says that they were acceptable to God. It's almost like this imagery. What It is this imagery Paul's giving us. Like in the Old Testament, the priest would present an offering to God and thereby, as God accepts that offering through faith, those making the offering were acceptable to God. And Paul's now making it, showing that these Gentile believers themselves were the offering. Now, Paul's an inspired writer of Scripture, so you know, obviously this came from God. But Paul also understood the Old Testament, and he knew it well. And what Paul was doing is Paul was looking back at Isaiah chapter 66, verse 20. I'm going to put that on the screen for you. If you look at Isaiah 66, verse 20, it says, Then they, it's talking about the faithful people of God, the covenant people of God, shall bring all your brethren from where? From all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So here, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is looking forward and saying, at one point in time, that the faithful people of God would be bringing the nations before God as an offering to the Lord. And here was Paul writing the book, the letter of Romans, and Paul was writing that with this in mind, recognizing that the ministry that he was doing by bringing Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 66, as Paul was taking these Gentile believers and presenting them before God as a faithful offering that was acceptable to God. It's a beautiful picture of what Paul's ministry was, and I'll tell you, as we do ministry today, Think about as you're investing into other people and they're becoming sanctified, it really is an offering that's pleasing to God as lives are being changed through the ministry that you're blessed to be a part of. It's a great picture for us to look at. However, um, verse 18 made it very clear that it's Jesus Christ that's doing the ministry and not us. Paul says, actually in verse 17, he says, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boastings in things pertaining to God. Now, Paul talks about boasting, but he goes further in verse 18 and he says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. See, Paul recognized the danger here. Paul, the great apostle, was just seeing people coming to faith all throughout that whole region of now he's even a goal of going to Spain, but he's seeing Gentile converts in Rome and in Macedonia and Achaia and all the way through in you know, the Asian area, Turkey and all this area. Paul was being used by God in a mighty way, and he was seeing the work flourish, the ministry flourish, people responding. And Paul says, I will not boast of anything 
except Jesus Christ. See, Paul was recognizing a danger here. This is something that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, can be very susceptible to. It's so easy to think, wow, look at what God's doing through me. Look at what I was able to accomplish. Did you see that person? Man, they used to look like this, and I gave all this time to them, and I invested in them, and I led them to the Lord, and now look at them. And we start to kind of feel pretty good about ourselves, don't we? As a church, we can let that happen as well. We can think, look at what we're doing. Look at the impact that we're having. And what Paul is saying as a Christian leader and as a disciple, it is not me. God wants me to pour into these other people. But it's Jesus Christ who's changing lives, and I will boast in nothing except for Jesus Christ. Now, I want to bring it down to for your everyday use. What does this mean to you? Well, God wants you to, for some of you to preach the word, for all of you to teach the word, whether it's in Sunday school, whether it's in your own house with your own kids, whether it's opening the Bible up with a friend or leading a small group. God wants us to preach. He wants us to teach. He wants us to encourage others. He wants us to come alongside. He wants us to serve. He wants us to do all of these things but he wants to make sure that the glory is being given to God and not to us. And that's what Paul's like really stressing here for us as well. Now, as we think about this, one of the things we have to be careful of as a church is to watch our own hearts. You may not have noticed this, but about eight years ago, we took the attendance figures out of the bulletin. About two years ago, we took the financial giving figures out of the bulletin. Now, some of you, this doesn't really matter. But you ever notice what churches can tend to boast in? Attendance and offering. You know what's really sad? You go to pastor's conferences, and you know what? You're in a conversation, and all of a sudden, somebody says, so how big is your church? You know, and it's like, believe it or not, here you have men of God who are called to be pastors, and it's like, oh, we have this many people. Well, we have this many. Well, you know what? That's so, so meaningless because, you know, we put these things like attendance, and our budgets, and these things that are kind of in the secular world, how do businesses rate success? By their profit, by their sales volume. You know what? We're not a business. This is the family of God. This is the body of Christ. So if we are to set a measure for success, we better be thinking about making disciples. We better think about multiplying ministry. And you see, healthy churches make disciples. Healthy churches multiply churches. And healthy churches make decisions that will intentionally make them smaller. And think about, you know, us doing ministry in Trenton. Are we going to add to our attendance here? You know, we're spending money. We're not bringing money in. So what we were concerned about was by having those measurements in the bulletin, people tend to look at those as signs of church health. When what we really need to be asking ourselves is how effectively are we making disciples for Jesus Christ? And we need to check our heart. So on an individual basis, though, how can you know if you're pouring your lives into someone else and into another ministry? You know, it could be ministry here. We need people to lead children's ministries and youth ministries. And we need people to lead men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies. We, you know, we need people. I just heard this morning that we need bus drivers. If you like to drive, male, female, whatever, I think, as long as I think it's age 25 to 75, if you're in that range, you can drive the bus. And um, we need some drivers. 
but that helps the ministry because we don't have enough parking. But there are so many things you can invest in here, but all of us are called to invest into the lives of people outside of this church. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students, your family members. See, all of us are called to be disciple makers. See, that's, that's not an option. And um, one of the things I really want to encourage us is to watch our hearts, though, as God is using us. Let me give you a couple diagnostic questions to find out if your heart's in the right place. Are you ministering to and serving others with passion? If you're not serving others with passion, that's not an option in the Christian life. And if you're not, that's a discipleship problem. If you feel that if you really evaluate your heart and you're being fed, 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 but you're not reaching out to others, that's a problem of the heart. Secondly, are you thrilled when those you minister to grow? See, maybe you're, a, maybe you're leading one of our classes. Is your barometer how many people are coming? Or are you thrilled when you see lives being changed as the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms a life? Does it really get your heart thrilled? Number three, are you thrilled when you hear about lives being transformed and spiritual victories happening in other ministries here at Bible Fellowship Church? Think about our, our baptisms on Sunday morning. When you hear a testimony, and you might have nothing to do with kids' ministries, and somebody is sharing that they trusted Christ at girls' clubs on, on a Wednesday night, and they entered into the kingdom of God because their teacher, their leader led them to Christ, and you have nothing to do with that ministry, but are you just thrilled that somebody has entered into the kingdom of God and a life has been changed, and you had nothing to do with it. See, that to me is so cool. When we see God using our people to bring people to salvation through, the, through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's another one. Are you thrilled when other churches see numerical and spiritual growth? See, we could be praying for revival passionately here at Bible Fellowship Church, and we should be praying for revival. But what happens if there's no impact, no change here at Bible Fellowship Church, but XYZ Church down the street all of a sudden explodes and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Does that thrill us? Or do we kind of feel like, oh, well, God, I, I, I meant here. You see, these are questions. Are we passionate about seeing people grow as disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, I want to um, move on, and I want to look at the next section in verses 20 to 29. So if you turn in your Bible to verse 20, and we're going to pick up there. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But, that, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see. And they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yet they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. 
For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. What we see here is that Paul's passion was to preach the gospel message of Jesus Christ in places where it has not been preached before. Now, it makes us ask a question. Do we need to preach the gospel as a pioneer missionary in places that it hasn't been heard before to be faithful to Jesus Christ? The answer to that is maybe. It depends on who you are and what your calling was. I've been asked a number of times here at the church and say, um, Bob, why, why do we have to send missionaries overseas when there are so many needs right here? And you know what the answer to that is? Because we're needed and missionaries are needed in both places. We need to be sending missionaries overseas. But when I look out at this room right now, you know what I see right now? It's about 300, 350 missionaries sitting right in front of me. See, other countries are sending missionaries to the United States now. We've become a secular nation. And what they're doing is they're coming in, they're getting jobs in places like where you work, so they have inroads to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Do you know how many relationships and connections are represented by all of you sitting out there right now? God has placed you in a mission field, and He is sending you. It's not a matter of, are you sent? It's a matter of, where are you sent? For some of you, it's going to be overseas. For some of you, it's going to be your school down the street. It's going to be your place of work. It's going to be your neighborhood. All of us are sent. And Paul had a passion within him. We need to have that same burning passion ourselves when we talk about going where God wants us to go. I had a, I had a really neat interaction the other day. I um, got a phone call from a young woman here at the church who, when I heard her, her name, I didn't register who she was. And she asked if she could come in and meet with me. She happens to be a student at Cairn University who's studying education. Her name is Danielle Weber. And when she came into my office, I'm like, oh, I know who you are. She's been attending Bible Fellowship for two years. And she's studying education with the goal of teaching English as a second language, preferably somewhere in Asia as a ministry for Jesus Christ. And this summer, she's going to China teaching English as a second language. I'm sitting there thinking, man, you're in our church every single Sunday, and I had no idea about this. Not only that, the ministry that she's going with, she shared with me that Christy Nichols, who attends our church here every Sunday, went last year to China to teach English as a second language. And right within our midst, people that you don't even know, God is working in their hearts, and He is in the process of sending them to proclaim Jesus Christ in places where it hasn't been proclaimed. You know, I asked Danielle, probably most of you don't know who Danielle is. She works in the nursery, by the way, on Sunday mornings. And Danielle, I asked her, I said, would you write up a little bio about this and like, describe what it is you're going to be doing so that we can send it out as a church-wide email to let our church family pray for you while you're in China this summer. So I want to encourage you. There are people from this church going out and doing things like that that need our prayers. And um, when you get that, I'd encourage you to be praying for Danielle. But let's be a church that is always sending people 
to places where it hasn't been heard. You know, think about this. We talk about, you know, sending and why should we send people. There are places around the world that don't have churches. There are places around the world that don't have the Word of God in their own language. There are places and countries around this world that don't have theologically trained leaders. They don't have Christian radio. They don't have Christian books in their own language. They don't even have churches that serve coffee on Sunday morning. Can you believe that? You know, it's almost become like in America that if you don't have coffee on Sunday morning, you have to cancel church. What are we going to do without coffee? And not that that's bad. We are putting a cafe into our new addition that's coming on in the church just for enhanced gathering community space as a church. But you see, we have so many resources that parts of this world can't even imagine having. And we need to be faithful with what God has given us so that we are sending people to places like that. But we also need to remember, maybe it's a handful that go to the places like that. But all of you have been called to be sent by God as a missionary representing Jesus Christ. What I came up with for a, a point when I described this section we just read in 20 through 29 is this. Kindle a passion that fits who you are. See, some of you may be like Danielle or Amy. You guys might love it down in the nursery. There are others of you that we couldn't pay you enough to go down to the nursery on a Sunday morning. But you know what? That's okay because some of those nursery workers would never drive the bus. They would never want to teach an adult class on a Sunday morning or lead a small group. But see, God's wired us all differently. I want to encourage us to kindle a passion that fits who you are and use those gifts for Jesus Christ. And all of us have been called to use those gifts beyond the walls of this church every day of the week. And let's be a church that's always sending, whether it's internationally or locally, our people on a regular basis. Well, Paul made a little transition in verse 25, and he starts talking about this offering that was being collected for Jerusalem. And I mentioned how today's passage ties in really well with next week, and that's because if you remember back a year ago, Tom and I preached a two-week series when we were talking, when we announced Advancing the Gospel Ministry Expansion Project, and we preached from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And in, in those two, passage, two chapters in Corinthians, Paul was describing how he was challenging the churches in Macedonia and Achaia to make an offering, he, and Paul was collecting it, that would be taken over to Jerusalem because there was a famine taking place in Jerusalem at the time, and the church was really hurting. So Paul was going to these Gentile churches throughout Macedonia and Achaia and asking them to make an offering to the Christians, really Jewish converts, back in Jerusalem to help them over there. And I want to, as I was going through this, I was thinking, well, why was this particular offering so important to the Apostle Paul that he covered it in 2 Corinthians in two chapters in 8 and 9, and now he's bringing it up again here in, in Romans? And what Paul's doing at the end of this, he's asking the Roman Christians to participate in that offering back in Jerusalem. And Paul, who was called by God, remember what he said was, he's called to preach Christ where he hasn't been pre preached before. Paul was on his way to Spain. That was his heart's desire. He believed it was where God wanted him to go. But Paul stopped and said, yeah, I'm going to go to Spain, but first I'm going to deliver this offering all the way back in Jerusalem. So here was Paul in Macedonia when he was writing this letter. He's working with the churches up there. He's challenging the Christians in Rome. And he takes this offering personally all the way back to Jerusalem. And I think the reason was, was because I think that 
The act of generosity is incredibly important in the Christian life. And Paul was basically telling us that a, a Christian disciple is somebody who is generous. And as, as we look at this, I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. Read what Paul says here. Remember, this was, this was written now to the church in Corinth, who he was asking them to give to this offering. And Paul says, because of the proof given by this ministry, that ministry was the offering. So he's saying, because of the proof given by this offering, they, the Christians in Jerusalem, will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. See, what Paul was tying in here was the generosity of the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia was a reflection on the gospel. Because what Paul was saying was, if you're a, if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple, you will live generously. Paul just assumed it. It wasn't an option in the Christian life. And Paul, it's interesting, he says here too, that, you know, it's just for the liberality of your contribution. Um, Paul was writing this to very poor Christians. The Christian, the church in Macedonia and Achaia was poor. But what they were doing was they were giving out of the little they had in abundance for Christians who were destitute over in Jerusalem. And you see, Paul was asking people, he said, you know what? Your generosity, it's, it doesn't, it's not connected to how much you give. It's your heart that God is worried about. Do you have a generous heart so that whatever it is you have, and those gifts were going to look different. For some Christians, they probably had barely anything, and I'm sure there were some that were quite wealthy. You see, generosity means, are you living your life with all of the possessions that God has given you with a generous spirit it's not the amount because the amount should differ based on what you are given. But Paul was tying in. He was saying, but you know what? He was so passionate about the offering because Paul was looking at him, man, if this offering flops, if I'm like collecting this for all these months and months and months to help Jerusalem and all I do is bring him over a couple dollars, that's going to be a reflection on the gospel. The other thing that Paul recognized was that these were Gentile believers that he was collecting the money from. There was hatred. Scripture calls it a dividing wall that existed between Jew and Gentile. And here was Paul collecting money from these Gentile Christians and taking it over to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul was saying that relationship that's been transformed by the gospel between Gentile and Jew is breaking down these dividing walls that existed and it's taking the gospel and it's just making the gospel come to life. People are going to notice that there's something different. That we are loving people who are different than we are. That the gospel message of Jesus Christ is transforming lives. And these churches are alive in love for one another and in generosity of their giving. Now, Paul goes on. And in the last part of this, we're going to wrap up by reading verses 30 to 33. And Paul transitions now, and he starts talking about prayer. As we look at 30 to 33, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, 
and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. See, Paul, he, Paul knew that he was in danger. He knew by taking this offering back to Jerusalem that he was putting his life at risk. And he was asking these Christians in Rome to pray for him. Now, what you have to look at is what kind of prayer was Paul asking for here? Paul wasn't just saying, hey, would, would you just kind of throw up a quick prayer for me? Paul was asking them to labor together with him for his safety. But it's really interesting because Paul says that it wasn't just, I want to be safe. He says in verse 32, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. And what Paul was looking at was basically saying, pray for my safety so that I can return to you in Rome and from there go on to Spain to further the kingdom ministry for God. Now, Paul really was, Paul really was in danger going back to Jerusalem. I want to give you just a quick summary of what took place. Paul left for, before going to Rome. Paul left, went back with the offering to Jerusalem. When Paul was in Jerusalem, Acts 21 through 25 gives a story of what happened. And there was Paul. He was in the, courts in, in the temple courts in Jerusalem. And this angry, violent mob of Jewish non-believers gathered together. And they were going to kill Paul. They were against the gospel. They were against Paul. And a cohort of Roman soldiers comes riding in. They rescue Paul. They take Paul back and they put him in prison. And Paul's being interrogated in prison, and all of a sudden the Jews develop a plot to kill Paul. They were going to set it up, and Paul was going to be transferred, and on the way being transferred, the Jews were going to kill him. Paul's young nephew happened to be nearby and overheard the Jews talking about this plot to kill the Apostle Paul. So Paul goes to the, to the, uh, the Roman leaders and tells them what's going on, tells them about the plot. So now the Romans take Paul, and in the process of his interrogation, Paul appealed to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen against the charges he was being accused of. And so what happens was Paul now gets a Roman escort and transportation from Jerusalem back to Rome. Now, it wasn't the easiest trip in the world, though, because they were shipwrecked and another, a couple other things happened. But here were the Christians. And you have to ask a question. Did God answer the prayer of the Christians in Rome who were praying for Paul's safety. Now, if they, you know, if they envisioned Paul getting attacked by a violent mob, being thrown in prison, being shipwrecked, going through all these hardships, it's probably not what they were praying for. But you see, what happened was, Paul wasn't saying, pray for my safety. He was praying, pray for my safety so that I can get back. And here's the irony. The two groups that hated the gospel and hated Paul were the Jews and the Romans. So what happened? God used the Jews to stir up all this strife so that the Romans took Paul, and Paul gets taken back to Rome on Rome's nickel with a military escort all the way back to Rome. So God used his own enemies to get Paul exactly where he wanted Paul. And church history tells us, it's not recorded in Scripture, but it's pretty, it's pretty well believed that Paul did leave Rome, take the gospel to Spain, but it was after preaching the gospel in Spain that he came back to Rome, was arrested again, eventually martyred and lost his life for the gospel. But here was God using the prayers of all these faithful Christians to deliver Paul from danger and send him over to Rome. And I want to talk about our prayers. You know, sometimes we pray and it's like that kind of prayer. 
God bless the missionaries. And you know what? I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know what? I think in some ways we tend to pray for safety a bit too much. You know, I think as we look around the world, there are Christians being martyred all over the world. And you know what's happening when these Christians are being martyred? Others people are watching and they're seeing it. And where is the church flourishing the most? The church flourishes where there's persecution. And where is the church on the decline? Where we have it the easiest. You see, we shouldn't necessarily be praying for our comfort. If we want to really be faithful in praying to God, say, God, help me to be faithful to you wherever you take me. God, help, you, help me to be faithful to you wherever you send me. You know, I mentioned my son's going to be going over to Vietnam. It's not that Vietnam's a dangerous place anymore, but that's a pretty big trip. Of course, I'm going to pray for his safety. But you know what I'm also? I'm praying that God will transform his heart by the experience that he has and that this is a significant growth opportunity for him and also praying for their team as they serve the Lord over there. You see, we need to be able to hold things loosely. And I want to encourage all of us in our prayer lives, Paul describes a prayer here. He says in verse 30, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Think about strive. It's not just throw up a prayer. Paul's saying, be intentional, be passionate, strive in your prayers with me. And as a church, we have to look inside our own lives sometimes and just ask ourselves, you know, what is our prayer life really like? I think all of us would say we'd like it to grow. The final point from this section I want to put up is strive together in prayer for the gospel. I had um, read a story from a missionary, and he was a missionary over in Burma, and he was doing a prayer walk through a Buddhist temple in Burma. And as he was going in, he, he saw this huge golden statue of, of Buddha. And in front of it, he said there was these countless peasants, very poor people, that were bowing down, kneeling in prayer to this statue of Buddha. And at the same time, they were stuffing money into this treasury box. He said these were incredibly poor people. They were basically giving everything they had into that treasury box, hoping that Buddha would bless them and their broken lives. Now, the missionary was praying, and he was walking along, and as he continued his prayer walk, he came around the back of this huge, it was a huge statue of Buddha. And when he got around the back, what he saw was this big scaffolding that was up on the statue, and there was workers diligently trying to repair the Buddha statue because it was terribly disintegrating. And he thought to himself, you know, how sad is that picture? He said, here we have these incredibly broken people praying to this broken statue of Buddha, asking Buddha to fix their broken lives, all the while where well, there's people on the back desperately trying to repair this broken Buddha. That's sad. But you think about it. Here we have the God of heaven wants to hear your prayers. He wants to answer your prayers. And what do we tend to rely on? You know, so often we tend to rely on when we get down, when we get discouraged, when we go through life, we tend to rely on our money. We tend to rely on the prestige of our job. We tend to rely on relationships. We tend to rely on so many other things than striving in prayer to the God of heaven who wants and knows what is best for you. And I really want to encourage us to be different as a church. Let's be a church that strives together in prayer for the gospel.
As we close this morning, I'm just going to close this by reading a prayer. This prayer was written by a Puritan pastor hundreds of years ago. I got it out of the book. It's a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of prayers from Puritans. It's a wonderful book. Um, you'll tell by the language, it's hundreds of years old. But it's, um, it's a wonderful prayer that covers a lot of what we've been talking about this morning. And I'm just going to close the service. When I'm done praying, we'll be done. But I want you to listen to the words of this Puritan pastor hundreds of years ago and think about what we, what we heard from Scripture this morning. Oh, my Lord, forgive me for serving Thee in sinful ways, by glorifying in my own strength, by forcing myself to minister through necessity, by accepting the applause of others, by having another foundation to stand upon beside thee. Help me to see that it is faith stirred by grace that does the deed, that faith brings a man nearer to thee, raising him above mere man, that faith centers in thee as God all-sufficient, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If I have not such faith, I am nothing. It is my duty to see thee above all others in mind and eye. Help me to abhor myself in comparison to thee, and keep me in a faith that works by love and serves by grace. Amen.
Trust the sweetest friend.